0: Well, tonight it is a great, great pleasure for me to present our speaker, um, Selena Realio, who was a colleague at National Defense University uh, with me, with Tom Blau in, in this room. And it was a privilege to work with her in the uh, counterterrorism uh, fellows program. In fact, we once joint t- taught a course, and Selena is still at National Defense University, where she is professor of practice at the William J. Perry Center for Hemispheric Defense Studies, and she focuses there on national security, illicit networks, transnational organized crime, counterterrorism, and threat finance issues. Selina brings both a background in finance in New York, uh, an academic background and the deep government experience to these topics. She was the State Department Director of Counterterrorism Finance Programs Secretary of State's Office of the Coordinator for Counterterrorism in Washington. Uh, she managed a multi-million dollar assistance finance uh, t- sorry, foreign assistance program aimed at saf- safeguarding financial systems against terrorist financing. Uh, I could the, uh, Selena's background from Harvard Business School MA Johns Hopkins uh, Bachelor of Science Georgetown University Foreign Service School certificate from the Institut d'études politique in Paris uh, she's taught at Georgetown George Washington at Joint Special Operations universities uh, has traveled to more than 70 countries in her work, speaks French to Spanish fluently, and can converse in Italian, German, Filipino, and Arabic. Uh, Those are just some highlights of her many accomplishments and tonight she will be speaking on how to defund ISIS and other terrorists. Please join me in welcoming Selina
1: Raul.
2: I plan to do tonight and leave ample time for questions, because we have such a really um, learned and inquisitive group from our uh, cocktail session, uh, time for questions. What we'll take a look at is how um, this whole field of looking at threat financing, which is how threats are being funded has become now an integral part over the last 10 years of all of our campaigns. And it's actually part of all of the national strategies. And we anticipate in the next administration that it will be an important facet as opposed to just an accessory, which had been um, kind of prior to 9-11 and even the initial years after 9-11. How are we using financial intelligence to better understand our adversary? And more importantly, how are we using financial instruments offensively, which you probably know as sanctions, and defensively which is in terms of investment and providing opportunity uh, and more prosperity and security go hand in hand so we're trying to make it an actually established discipline uh, much more so so if we can start and take a look more importantly at the world that we're living in this is what the next administration is going to inherit Um, everyone calls this my circle of doom my my students who are um, uh, at George Washington University they're like She's kind of the professor of the dark side of globalization. I don't know if you know that there's something called Rate My Professor uh, that the students actually put in there about the pros and cons, like she's a tough grader. The one lately, which is a bit disturbing, she gets everyone a job at the CIA or FBI. So I have for next semester a wait list of 17 students trying to get into my, with very creative writing as to why they have to take my class. Um, But this is what we take a look at. And this is literally this question of state, and non-state actors. And we were just at a um, conference today at the Foreign Policy Institute uh, uh, initiative this morning at the museum where General Votel, who's leading the efforts of Central Command against ISIL as well as the fight in Afghanistan um, and South Asia, really now captures it as a trans-regional threat and what he calls multi-dimensional domains, including cyber in that. We're gonna focus particularly on the um, threat of both ISIL in Iraq and Syria, but even more disturbingly, is beyond. And how it's really all these away games that we used to talk about, how to contain, are now no longer that. They are actually uh, threats, as we saw, sadly, with the attack, a terrorist attack at Ohio State University, uh, which I will gladly say that's what it was, (laughs) Um, are now actually coming and encroaching on our homeland. But if we take a look at all of these different dimensions and these different threats, whether it's a rising China, um, an adventurism of Russia, and these other issues that are taking place around the world, what's actually now demanding a new construct of national security in what's even a post 9-11 world. We have the post-war institutions, such as the way we've set up the 1947 National Security Act probably needs to be uh, amended, if not totally reformed. So how do you use post-World War II tools and organizations and mechanisms to fight the threats of the 21st century? This is kind of what we're trying to grapple with uh, in this sense. Mm -hmm. So what we see is, just as we have been the beneficiaries of globalization over the last 30 years, um, in terms of communications, technology, access to goods, services, uh, information, and physical access, the ability for all of us to travel to all the corners of the world, We've seen how illicit actors, and when we talk about those, we include terrorists, criminals, proliferators, and their facilitators, have also taken advantage of a more interconnected world, and more importantly, more porous borders, as well as the cyber domain, which is all the rage now. We're always talking about cybersecurity and the cyber instrument of national power. You're actually seeing now, just a factoid, I had the pleasure of talking about Russia. Um, you're actually seeing cocaine in discotheques in Moscow, costing six times the price of the same amount sold in a disco in Miami. So you're seeing what we see, the globalization of drug trafficking, arms (coughs) trafficking, sadly human trafficking, um, as well as all types of other contraband taking advantage of the global supply chain. And um, what we're seeing, oops, sorry. What we're seeing is just as large corporations try to maximize Uh, their opportunities, and more importantly, take advantage of this interconnectedness. How are they using, we call it the four M's. Uh, I'm at the Quantico, I'm known as the, the the Marines love the letter M, right, Sebastian? Oh, (laughs) yes. And I'm now the professor of the four M's. So that's because nobody can pronounce my name. And it's about moving your team and your equipment from point A to point B. Walmart's doing the exact same thing now, getting the latest toys from point A to point B for Christmas shopping. And the first thing is what's moving through that supply chain, material. More importantly, who's controlling that is this concept of manpower. And sadly, corruption perhaps is the greatest uh, threat in terms of giving and allowing space for these illicit actors to undermine a lot of our institutions. Then the third one is financing, which I spent a lot of time taking a look at. And then lastly, the different mechanisms. Are we using land, air, sea, space, and now cyberspace as different routes? So what we're seeing now is that when we try to analyze our adversaries, these illicit networks, whether they be terrorist or criminal in nature, we were really focused on a decapitation strategy, looking at command and control, very classic military doctrine. What we learned through Afghanistan and Iraq was that we had to take a look at what else helped them, these groups sustain themselves and these organizations sustain themselves. What type of environment, aka corrupt environment, allowed them to flourish, ungoverned spaces, and they became alternatively governed spaces by these groups. How are they recruiting personnel and retaining them? How are they using logistics and technology in order to um, actually control larger parts of a uh, territory? And then more importantly, how are they using illicit activities? And this is the classic case we've seen in Afghanistan, where there's actually more opiates being produced now than before we intervened after 9-11 all of these different facilitators actually require one thing in common and that's the money part and that's what we've tried to figure out how to deny these groups access to these different facilitators what we've seen then is when we talk about how these groups finance themselves we look at four kind of steps and stages how are they raising the money how are they moving that money how are they storing that money and then, lastly how are they actually spending the money And this is very important in a lot of our counterterrorism investigations. So as we speak right now, there's a discovery uh, just today that the Ohio State attacker um, was actually here in Washington, DC. He actually, through his credit card uh, receipts and the kind of signature, he bought uh, the butcher knife that he used in the attack, initial reports are uh, revealing this, um, at a Home Depot here in Washington, DC. What was he doing here on Thanksgiving Day, which is pretty far away from Ohio State, and why was he, he came all the way here to buy, there's a Home Depot I think in Ohio as well, right? So these are big questions, how we're using the tracing, and that's this question about spending. What we're seeing now is what we call this convergence between terrorism and crime. And at National Defense University, three years ago, we published this book called The Convergence of Illicit Networks, where instead of compartmentalizing counterterrorism, countercrime, and counter-proliferation efforts, We're trying to figure out how these groups are perhaps collaborating, or they're becoming hybrid, and more importantly, who the facilitators are, and the importance of actually going after the facilitators with the strong arm of the law as rigorously as against actual terrorists and criminals. And it's kind of interesting, the person who actually endowed this project is now someone you might hear about in the news, General Flynn, when he was at DIA was actually the sponsor of this project, of the convergence of terrorism and crime, which has taken many years. And sadly, ISIS, as a criminalized state, has actually validated a lot of research about this convergence between terrorism and crime. Just to give you some examples of this convergence theory, I mentioned earlier Afghanistan, where literally between the Taliban, the Haqqani network, and other now ISIS sympathizers, or ISIS affiliates, they're actually using uh, contraband and the trafficking routes and more importantly drug trafficking in order to sustain their insurgency. Um, and that's where we're taking a look at the uh, question about the sustained levels, what we're going to be at uh, in terms of our uh, U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan because the situation is still uh, quite untenable there. That one we're going to talk about in much more detail in a couple of minutes is ISIL. And then Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Al-Shabaab, uh, Boko Haram is uh, making a fortune on human trafficking sadly. They're usually selling these girls as the third or fourth wife. As you many of you know, in the Islamic religion, uh, you are allowed to have up to four wives, so the brides are, tend to be the younger ones. Um, it's a very disturbing uh, phenomenon and uh, thankfully they've been trying more aggressively in Nigeria to find these girls or even actually prevent them and use a very uh, aggressive stance against them which is welcome but for those 237, 272 girls from the uh, Cuba which has been a while now um, it's probably too late for them um, and then we'll take a look at the FARC in uh, Colombia as well as Hezbollah. So I spent the last two years and I'm actually going to go there on Monday um, in Colombia working on the peace negotiation process so they've actually signed now a second deal um, in Colombia between the government of Colombia after over 50 years of conflict. The FARC began as an insurgency and then they actually took over the business of the Medellin and Cali cartels and then more importantly because of their income stream they became the richest terrorist group in the world only now to be overtaken by ISIL two years ago um, and what we've seen is they probably would never have lasted so long if they had not been in the cocaine trade. And also, that they call it in Spanish, that we have greedy noses. It's not very eloquent, the translation. It's because of the demand here in the United States. And it's probably the first example of this terror crime nexus that's been taking place for the longest time. What they do is they've actually set up, it's mostly cocaine trafficking, but we've seen now that they actually are very similar to different mafias, where they're actually diversifying their activities. The big question for the peace process now The leadership of the FARC will become political actors, but it's not clear if they have control over all 8,000 of the militants, and that those 8,000 militants are all gonna give up narcotics trafficking, gold smuggling, uh, human trafficking, because they're so lucrative. So what'll probably happen, they'll take off their uniforms and insignia as FARC, and just become what we consider criminalized uh, mafias, it's an interesting piece to see. The piece that I'm working on next week, and we're about to uh, embark on, in the second peace negotiation, they're actually requiring that the FARC um, itemize and have an accounting of their assets. And those assets are gonna be forfeited and then be put into a fund that is to pay for the reparations of the victims, which is very important in terms of uh, their reconciliation and uh, reintegration. And it's an area that I've been personally lobbying for many years, of take the money away from the bad guys and gals, by the way. A lot of the women are actually the ones who run the money. Um, and then have them actually pay for the peace. So it's a really big step that they've taken. Um, and So it's going to be a more palatable uh, peace process than the first one that actually absolves them of any jail time or of actually any paying any reparations. Another group I look at is Hezbollah, uh, sponsored still by Iran. And uh, sometimes they don't mention it. Iran continues to be the largest state sponsor of terrorism, with or without a deal. Uh, and Hezbollah is one of its militant uh, Let's say it's one of its uh, operators uh, in the field. So yes, it's a political group with political power, but we're much more interested in the militant arm of Hezbollah. Because until 9-11, Hezbollah was responsible for the largest number of American deaths, which is not really, it's kind of glossed over when people teach uh, terrorism at a lot of our universities. And they continue to, uh, continue to really think about the West as enemies, but even more so uh, are threatening the, the state of Israel. What we've seen though with Hezbollah is kind of interesting. Every time you had conflict in the Levant, you had waves and and, an exodus, a diaspora that would leave. And many of them settled around the world, but there are a lot of them actually in Latin America. And it's from this diaspora, which by the way, is both Christian and Muslim, and among the Muslim, both Sunni and Shia. The ones that we're more interested in are among the Shia diaspora, those who sympathize and, more importantly, support Hezbollah. And a lot of them actually are around the world. They use inter, they're using their international businesses to raise money and move money. And we've actually seen them now start to use the global drug trafficking uh, routes uh, to earn income and, more importantly, to finance. And why is this of interest to us today? Hezbollah are the foreign fighters for Assad. And you've seen the terrible pictures and images of this continuing uh, Syrian civil war. And that's where they see a lot of more movement of the fundraising and, more importantly, a lot more sympathizers for Hezbollah um, since the start of the Syrian civil war. What we saw is a very interesting case um, in, uh, in Hezbollah. They were actually using a used car business, buying used cars here in the United States, luxury vehicles, Audis, Mercedes, uh, BMWs mostly in cash, and they were actually putting them in containers, but it, they were going to be sold in West Africa as used cars. It's a totally legitimate business. But it took a little bit of a deviation, a little detour. The containers would then go to South America, and they would be filled with Colombian cocaine. So it's almost like a dual purpose of what they were using, their international used car business. Then the containers would be uh, offloaded in Benin, among other countries, and they would actually sell the cars. But then the cocaine would continue into the more lucrative markets of Western Europe and reach all the way to Moscow and Russia. That money then would be used again to repeat the cycle. Why did the United States get involved in this? Because the money came through the United States and the proceeds were of money laundering. But what ends up happening is some of that money actually goes through what's called the Lebanese Canadian Bank. And the money actually enters the bank accounts of militant members of Hezbollah. So what you see in this very interesting case is how they took advantage of globalization, and then more importantly, they're using a legitimate import-export business of used cars, and they're piggybacking narcotics trafficking. When the money's coming back to be recycled and cleaned or laundered, it's proceeds of crime, so it's money laundering, but it becomes terrorist financing because the end actual destination is to the coffers of militant members of Hezbollah. And they are continuing to be a foreign terrorist organization uh, designated by the United States, Israel, and the European Union. So this is an example of how we take advantage of trade, right, in terms of all of uh, globalization, but this is a really interesting way how very astute uh, business um, community members are actually helping to fund and support uh, Hezbollah. I know you all came to talk about ISIL. Um, the fact that we can't even name it properly—it's like, is it Islamic State? Is it ISIS? Is it ISIL? I spent a lot of time uh, traveling overseas trying to explain how this was uh, basically a speechwriter at the, at the White House end up with. So it's the way that, I, that the White House explains it—it's the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant. They, I mean, we're not supposed to use the word Islamic State uh, to give them credence. But I'm like, well, inside the acronym, it says Islamic States. So this is kind of one of these questions you're like, so we're not allowed to use Islamic State. So then we went to Daesh, right? Which is what John Kerry uses, which I think is the, the most appropriate piece. But the strategy at the White House continues to be that. Yes, that's why. That's why. But you know, words matter, right? If you can't actually name and identify the, uh, the adversary, we already have a problem. But we've actually, and I wrote a very controversial piece uh, earlier at the beginning of the year uh, for the cipher brief, they're very uh, short articles, if you don't follow it, it's actually a quick synopsis, where I actually called them a criminalized state. Um, And I had to prove my thesis about how they rose to power through acts of crime. And then more importantly, why they're so resilient and now how they've surpassed the FARC in Colombia to become the richest terrorist group in the world and actually in history. We're estimating a, a north of $2 billion in terms of their actual uh, hazard holdings. So these are the nine lines of the strategy that was designed uh, two years ago by uh, General Allen and his team. Um, I was on—I team five, they would have to look, send you an email saying what, uh, if you were going to have a meeting it would be uh, team five. So we were looking at the financing piece and we were looking at disrupting ISIL's finances. But a lot of the things that we were looking at were all interconnected and particularly we're looking at how to deal with the foreign fighters because a lot of them needed money to get from point A to point B to actually become uh, you know ISIS not just sympathizers but actual warriors and how they would make their trek from different parts of the world and actually go and fight alongside in Iraq and Syria so we're going to take a look at both of those pieces. The way the strategy has been designed is it's taking a look at three different spheres of operation. The one you see most in the news when they're talking about the um, the military campaign, um, the airstrikes, is that military more kinetic, we call it the physical domain. The place that we're looking at, and I'm going to share with you some of the statistics, is looking at how do we disrupt their financing, lower their income stream, and then go after actual uh, financial targets with a better understanding of how they were um, run in terms of economically and financially, which is a very different. It's an approach where instead of just trying to go after the leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, we were actually taking a look at this, his CFOs, his chief financial officers, his chief <coughs> strategy officers, his chief information officers. So it's a much more comprehensive way to attack the entire structure. And these are very difficult people to replace uh, which is very important to take a look at then the third one is the countering violent extremism you've heard this talked about a lot especially the last 48 hours about how this young man got radicalized in ohio state Um, so we talk a lot about we have the physical caliphate in iraq and syria then the virtual caliphate which is what happens in cyberspace so when we take a look and we were trying to design the strategy and i had the privilege of being recruited by General Allen in the very summer August of 2014, right after the beheadings of the journalists, they were trying to figure out how to broaden the approach against this enemy that we didn't know as much as we thought we knew about them, and the idea was how are we going to understand how they're financed, and then could we set up a set of targets to hurt them financially, and that's actually what we've been able to do uh, in the last two years. So what's very interesting with Daesh is they are a very diversified um, uh, kind of enterprise. I call them a criminal enterprise. The bulk of their income actually comes from extortion. And this is why it is critical to take back control of the territory. Um, A lot of my colleagues are like, well, that's really aggressive. I said, well, if they don't actually have control of people and actual physical uh, space where there are stores or little shops, they won't be able to actually extort. Um, and you've seen a lot in the news about how they've been making tons of money on um, oil smuggling. These are the same oil smuggling routes that have existed even during the oil for food Saddam Hussein days. And the people who are buying this are not philosophically, oh, I would like to buy ISIS oil versus non-ISIS oil. There's not this distinction. It's like price. So I have to thank Bob Riley for having me come all the way here because I actually got, I have to fill up gas was 10 cents less here than in the district, where I live in Georgetown. So that's an example, right? I'm actually crossing the bridge to come to Virginia. These are the people who are, your people are like, who is buying this oil? It's the same trucker, it's the same guy who has a tractor. They're not thinking about where it's coming from. So it's a market-driven piece about why they're basically selling the oil cheaper is a big piece. Um, you've seen a lot on human trafficking. Sadly, we've seen from a lot of the Uh, document extractions of safe houses, they would actually have lists of pricing of the girls, Uh, how fair the skin is, how age-wise, how innocent she is, Um, and they would be used for forced labor in terms of uh, kind of domestic servitude, but sadly also for sexual exploitation. Um, We'll take a look at a couple of those things. Then the antiquities piece is quite interesting. It's part of not just the ethnic cleansing, which is the human trafficking piece, but it's also the cultural cleansing of these very renowned sites that I had the privilege of visiting Palmyra in in, in the days before. This idea of actually raising a lot of these cultural sites. And then what they ended up doing were smaller artifacts that they realized had value is what's being trafficked. And we're trying to raise awareness particularly among private dealers, both in Europe and um, across the Middle East, as well as in the United States, how you can actually figure out the provenance of these new artifacts that are coming onto the market. Very interesting piece that uh, has uh, really pushed us to work much more closely with the private sector, museums, um, arts and uh, antiquities dealers, an area that the government really hadn't um, really engaged in until fairly recently. So just to show you a little bit of how they do the breakdown. It's a little bit old, um, but it just kind of shows you that it's about a third from, they call it taxes, we would call it extortion, um, and then the oil and gas, and then different donations and the like. It's very hard to actually quantify uh, what their value is, but it makes sense in terms of, and the, sadly, what they, we see is because they use violence or the threat of violence, and more important for those who do not pay the tax or the extortion, they make examples of them very publicly. So let's say it's the shopkeeper of the 7-Eleven in a little village who does not pay. They'll actually execute them as well as their entire family in front of the rest. And this is the, ex- actual, this is the kind of psychological torture that they're actually imposing. So most people do pay, so those who, su- who sadly are still subjects of, uh, of Daesh in the caliphate. The other piece we've seen too is the oil smuggling routes. This we've had tremendous progress uh, now that we've actually decided to use uh, missile strikes to go after the oil um, infrastructure from the refineries to the actual routes to the trucks that are going after. And we'll take a look a little bit at how much we're uh, uh, kind of investing in this uh, campaign against ISIL. The human trafficking, um, you've seen a lot of the, uh, the testimonials of people who've escaped what is not that well-known is um, young Kayla Mueller, I think you all remember her as the aid worker who was kidnapped for ransom. She was actually then also the favorite girlfriend of uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, um, and it's quite sad in terms of uh, the way they kind of prioritize uh, your ranking, uh, depending on your, how fair your skin is, how fair your hair is. It's very, uh, it's how, what do you put a price on a human life? But I think it's important to show how this brutality because we don't have embedded reporters because of the decapitations of reporters i understand why freelance reporters don't there's a story here of genocide that's really not being told Um, and the things that we're starting to see when the um, uh, special forces go into a house and start to see how they're documenting it's a business where they actually are selling and actually giving a lot of these girls as the prizes for um, foreign fighters. Foreign fighters would get actually a salary plus a wife. And sadly, a lot of these were the Yazidi women. Uh, they would actually execute the men in the village and then sadly take the women and children as uh, slaves. Things that we've never, we haven't never we have seen since uh, the ancient times. And this is just an example of the types of uh, artifacts that we're starting to come across. Pretty interesting. So what they've done is create resilience, right, in terms of having almost like a multinational corporation, that if one line of their income is diminished, they still could rely on others. But the extortion one is why the critical piece of taking back Mosul, getting them out of Raqqa, at this point in time in the military campaign is very, very important. And the bigger challenge will be to actually hold that territory, and more importantly, what comes next in terms of governance uh, of those territories in a post-ISIL era. So just to give you a couple of statistics in terms of, uh, so this campaign's been going on since August of 2014. Uh, we have an average cost of uh, your taxpayer dollars of 12.5 million a day. There are technically over 60 countries in the coalition, but only about a dozen are directly involved in the military campaign. And what we've seen too is uh, whenever a country in the coalition has actually experienced an ISIL attack, we've seen their response actually step up, In France, after the November 13th attacks uh, is a great example of how they became much more hawkish in terms of their approach and were actually really uh, active in a lot of the bombing raids subsequent to those attacks last year. Just to show you a comparison. So I picked that date, uh, November 13th, 2015, when you had those uh, coordinated attacks in Paris. Uh, You just take a look at the numbers. So the total number of uh, targets that we've uh, been able to hit at that time was 16,075. Then I took the latest that we've had that are releasable. So you've seen we've increased uh, almost uh, two, threefold. It shows the up-tempo of going after them. And then now you have the direct offensive into Mosul and now uh, embarking on Raqqa. So it's a very important thing to take a look at. The bigger question is how do you measure? So in military space, it's easy to measure. In the financial space, we've actually been able to hurt them about 30% is the estimate in decreasing their income through a combination of getting rid of their um, top financial leaders, but more importantly going after a lot of the oil infrastructure is what you actually see here, the military approach. Just to show you a couple of visuals, so these are from my colleagues at Central Command. Uh, The one on your uh, left is the actual destruction of an oil production site, a refinery. So this is what they call uh, battle damage assessment. I think there's some military guys here who know the BDA. And the one on your right is actually, they bombed a stash of cash. It's actually a warehouse in Mosul that was filled with cash. It was a lesson learned though, because uh, the first bombing raid, they did not use an incendiary device. So it was literally the disbursement of cash. So someone has that money, but it was not exactly neutralized. The second time they did that, it was one of those lessons learned incidents um, in terms of going after the money. And then also, uh, in combination to this, we were actually able to identify and then more importantly use drone strikes to go after the chief financial officer on the Syrian side near Raqqa as well as the um, chief financial officer in uh, Iraq, in Mosul. So the idea is to go after these enablers but more importantly they're very difficult to uh, to actually neutralize and more importantly very difficult for them to replace. And in the operation in Raqqa, they actually raided, it was the first use of Delta Force uh, in Syria, it was May of last year, they tried to capture him alive, uh, he resisted and my students at Joint Special Operations Command said, well ma'am, we neutralized him because that's our mission. I'm like, okay. Uh, but Interestingly, the team that went there did something very daring culturally. They detained the wife, and the wife was so instrumental in explaining how the business was set up. And she was actually running the human trafficking piece, and she was also the custodian of young Kayla Mueller, the American aid worker. That's how we were able to glean these lists of how they did the pricing. So in that raid, they got all the laptops, the cell phones, and they were able to do a link analysis of who the masterminds and who the key people were to add to the targeting list. So these are the types of things that you see that are much more expensive in terms of bombing raids, but there's a uh, uh, more comprehensive way that we're doing on the ground, gathering all types of different intelligence, and this is how we're using financial intelligence. Understanding how they operate what funds them and more importantly how we can neutralize them in a much more deliberate fashion. And sadly we have what we call these inspired versus directed attacks. I think um, if I were the victim or I were the family member of the victim, I really wouldn't care how the FBI or other agencies in France are categorizing the attack as an inspired or a directed. It's a terrorist attack, right? And more importantly, sadly, we're seeing a lot of them crop up. And because the conditions in Iraq and Syria are getting worse, we're seeing this return of the foreign fighters. And this is something that's very disturbing. Uh, and we should be very aware that particularly Europe is at risk. So you've actually seen, so in Paris, the actual um, the November 13th were directed attacks. These are. French citizens who went to Syria, got trained, came back with the orders. That's why it was more sophisticated and much more lethal. What we saw in San Bernardino, in um, Orlando, perhaps in Ohio State, is this more question about radicalized online and then more importantly it's not as sophisticated. Um, But they're just as dangerous and this question then is as Daesh, we see as containment in Iraq and Syria is not enough? because what they're seeing, we're seeing is it's metastasized into a movement that's actually now touching all types of, all different parts uh, of the world. Very interesting to see. So what we're trying to do is when law, local law enforcement is trying to identify those who, here in the United States, we have the First Amendment, we are allowed to read all of this stuff on the internet. The question is, at what point does the person become motivated And then more importantly, inspired and start to actually conspire to commit terrorism. And this is the space where we're taking a look at. How do you detect that? And more importantly, how are they starting? What I look at is how are they financing and how are they getting access? So this idea now that they're actually taking a look at the credit card um, uh, receipts of the Ohio State attacker is really interesting to see because you'll see movement and sadly they know exactly what you're buying at any store. and this idea of actually incorporating it at the very beginning of the investigation as they look at other things, cell phone calls, physical movement, travel, and then who his contacts are. Uh, they call it the signature, right? On your cyber signature uh, on let's say a laptop that would have been maybe at his house or on his actual uh, mobile phone. Pretty interesting. And that's the part we're trying to really uh, kind of nip in the bud is the plot. Plot and then execution. And it's a very, very challenging piece uh, for all law enforcement around the world. Um, The latest work that I've done is taking a look at how government can't do it all, nor should it. And we've actually failed in a lot of cases, taking a look particularly at the the countering violent extremism in the ideological space. So we're looking at how do we partner with uh, other institutions and organizations in the private sector and in the civic sector who better know the community and probably are better messengers. Um, so, uh, in the latest book that we published, which is the sequel to *Convergence*, called *Beyond Convergence*, I focused my research on taking a look at um, counterterrorism and finance, countering violent extremism, and more importantly, cybersecurity and how you can actually engage different parts of the American society to go after them. So, we're looking at these different spaces uh, in terms of doing that. Um, so, in the financing piece, we're seeing that. Uh, Criminals, as well as terrorists, are using much more sophisticated ways. Mobile payments, you probably have all heard about Bitcoin and virtual currencies, the deep dark web. How can we keep at pace with these groups that are using these new financial innovations that help us as average consumers, but more importantly, how do we detect and how do we empower the private sector to be our eyes and ears to detect anomalies and what we call red flag uh, uh, transactions. The other thing we're trying to do, uh, particularly with a lot of the virtual caliphates of Daesh, sadly, uses American platforms like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, all these types of messaging pieces. So at companies like Facebook and like Twitter, they actually have hired uh, consultants to help them identify uh, this actual extremist thought that's being propagated And there's some debate as to do you keep the account open so we can see who's posting and try to use that, or do we actually censor them? It's a very big debate in terms of privacy. But now they realize uh, uh, these groups, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or any of these other social media platforms, they realize that their brand and their reputation is priceless. So they're actually really trying to get ahead of the curve in terms of helping to identify radical thought of all types, by the way. Um, And this idea also of different theses, including cyberbullying, things that are much more local and less in the terrorism uh, space. It's an interesting uh, kind of partnership that we have now with Silicon Valley that was not necessarily warmly welcomed when this concept of the Twitter, you can actually have multiple Twitter handles and you could create them, but now there's much more control in terms of uh, trying to uh, deny them the access to have this platform. Uh, to propagate their ideas. So I thought it was interesting um, so I'm from New York City and uh, it's really interesting the case of, we call him the New York New Jersey bomber. If you all remember it was like on the eve of the UN General Assembly where everyone is in high alert uh, another example of uh, inspired and poor execution um, and it was very fascinating and it's an example of how average citizens, New York is Quite unique, as you know. Uh, Just because of the experience of 9-11 and because there was all these kind of elevated threats, a lot of the local news was kind of talking about see something, say something. Well, this is a great example. So you know that there was a bomb that actually exploded on 23rd Street. It's, for those who are not from New York, it tends to be, it's the area of Chelsea. It's a very prolific gay neighborhood, a lot of young people, and it was really meant to disrupt a lot of, and it was on a Saturday night specifically targeting kind of the entertainment uh, aspects of that neighborhood. So that bomb exploded. He covered the lid, so apparently it did not have the impact that it could have had, which could be much more lethal. There were people who were injured, but there were no deaths. Then the other bomb was found a couple blocks away on uh, 27th Street by a woman who was coming back from her house. She saw the um, pressure cooker on the street of didn't think any New Yorkers are pretty um, kind of we're pretty callous we just we don't even talk to each other we don't even say hello but then she went up to her apartment and she saw the local news she was just checking the weather and they had the whole live coverage of the 23rd Street thing then she thought again she's like wow what is that pressure cooker she went downstairs took a picture of it with an iPhone then called uh, 911 then waited for the uh, police to come with a dog detector which uh, then the policeman basically tells her run away and she realizes, wow! I, and she's like taking a picture of the eye. But it was so interesting that her ability to see something, say something, and then call is how they actually uh, identified. And that pressure cooker bomb had his fingerprints. It really was the lead to find this uh, uh, this perpetrator. It's very interesting to see how an active citizenry uh, is uh, much more astute in terms of their neighborhood. And that's why we really take a look at the see something, say something. I now teach um, undergrads at uh, Georgetown GW. They were age three on 9-11, 2001. You'll almost have a half generation that is not sensitized to see something, say something. So we're trying to raise awareness. Um, they were not politically, or more importantly, even semi-conscious at that time. For them, their first kind of encounter with terrorism was uh, um, marathon bombing in uh, Boston, right? Uh, but it's really interesting how we need to have them be just as much eyes and ears in terms of taking a look at knowing their, uh, being aware of their neighborhood and also their classmates, which is pretty important. So what I'm trying to do is take a look at how we then empower our average citizens to become part of what we call the national security establishment or franchise, right? So historically, government has had the monopoly on the use of violence and more importantly, the actual mandate to protect the citizens and sovereignty and territory of the United States. What we're seeing now is that a lot of other sectors, whether it be the private sector or the civic sector, for example, religious organizations, um, schools, professors, teachers, are the ones who actually can see these red flags. Every time sadly, we have a school shooting in the United States when they interview the neighbors or the teachers, well, we kind of knew he was disturbed, but we didn't want to say anything. And this is an attitude that's really sad, that we don't feel that there's an opportunity to do an intervention, whether it be for counterterrorism or cyberbullying, all these other types of things. So we're trying to actually make this a much more integral part. And even more importantly, making it easy for the average citizen to safely and in confidence contact local, state, and federal authorities. Because this is the problem, it's like they see something, but they don't know what to do uh, with the information. Um, And that's what we're seeing, I call it the three C's and the three P's, because I work for the military, they like all these little acronyms. So it's the idea of uh, communicate, cooperate, and collaborate through public-private partnerships in order to now include other sectors into the conversation of what is countering violent extremism, what is cyberbullying, what is awareness in terms of whether it's different pieces of uh, our society. So it's a really interesting way where the average citizen should feel part of the franchise to keep our communities and our neighborhoods uh, safe. So one of the different examples here in McLean uh, because of uh, News Channel 4, one of those uh, little reports about human trafficking, I think you all probably heard this story, they actually found uh, the woman in her neighborhood would only see these two Filipino women come out to throw out the garbage and go back into the house. They never saw them in a car going to Tyson's corner or anything else. It was the Saudi defense attache who had two Filipinas basically enslaved in the basement and a McLean McMansion here. But it was because News 4 did this raising awareness and this woman was saying, oh wait, this is, there's something here and there was a number for her to call. It's an example of how you can use media and then more importantly kind of community policing in a way that could actually uh, save a life. And more importantly, uncover these types of things. Um, The Defense Attaché is no longer with us here in in the United States, because he invoked his diplomatic immunity. Um, So it's pretty interesting. They had been there for seven years. So sad. We take a look at it. So it's not just about terrorism. It's about all these other scourges and the like. And just to finish up, the, the original book was called Convergence, which we published in 2013. They're all available on the internet, and they are free. And we just published Beyond Convergence which takes a look at kind of the um, next kind of evolution of threats, particularly taking into account cyber, right? Everything that we do in terms of cyber affects us individually, our families, and our community, Um, and it's an area that I think is growing uh, that we also need to educate and raise awareness, but also be very careful in terms of how we protect our own data, uh, and more importantly, how we don't become the victims of uh, of cyber, so it's pretty interesting. So that's kind of what I work on. Uh, hopefully, it's useful for you to know what your 12.5 million dollars a day and the campaign against ISIL is being used for. Uh, we are making progress, but unfortunately, it's come at a huge price in terms of the time. And I think the most important part of the Daesh, ISIL, Islamic State story, is literally the humanitarian and genocide, the humanitarian crisis that we're really start we're seeing really spill over whether it's the refugee crisis into Europe, I mean, Aleppo, there is no nothing left in Aleppo. Um, and sadly, the United States missed an opportunity. It's my own opinion to really, because we are the policemen of the world, and sadly, this human tragedy that's unfolded probably could have been averted or mitigated if certain decisions had been made uh, starting in 2011. So I'm here, thank you very much for your attention, and thanks for coming out on a rainy night. <laughs> And I'm ready for cross-examination. <laughs> so now that we have new president elect and he is
1: really committed to destroy ISIS, what will change?
2: So I think the bigger thing is uh, we have been so just to give you an example of when we were looking at the just to contrast, right? We don't know what he's going to do, but we do know that the messaging is quite more, let's say robust in terms of the response. When we were looking at targeting specific um, oil fields, and refineries. The reason we didn't do it as aggressively until after the Pataclan, uh, the Paris attacks, was because we had to take into consideration environmental concerns of, uh, of what could be the day after, um, which was one of those questions of, well, because also we were not convinced that it was that bad. And I think what's happening now is because it's become metastasized and it's much broader and it's a threat that's coming to our homeland, you're going to see much more interest in this. I think it will be much more aggressive and I think also uh, you'll see a lot more defining the problem and explaining why it's of interest to the national security of the United States is very important, right? So we've actually seen an absence of leadership um, for the last two years Um, and I had the great privilege of working for General Allen, um, who is a storied and decorated soldier, who himself um, ended up not continuing because he didn't feel that there was the political will to really go after them the way we should have. So hopefully, with political will, we'll be much more. But there's, remember, after Daesh, the ideology will still be there, and there'll be something else. So it's one of these things that's a phase, and it's a generational fight. uh, And it's not been articulated well, um, how we fight them, or more importantly, why they hate us, which is a real basic piece.
1: Someday we we'll try to be clear as to the root cause is.
2: Yes, and I think that's a big question about, uh, so it's very interesting, and uh, we studied this, many of, it's not poverty. Most of these leaders are all from elite backgrounds and families. And sadly, they're using our technology and our innovation, like Twitter and it's amazing how quickly they were able to ratify us. So the tally is that they've been able to recruit over 40,000 foreign fighters uh, since 2011. That's, in, that's tremendous. Uh, and using our own Western modern <laughs> technology that they so much uh, reject, right, philosophically. So let's see. Uh,
0: yes, I have a question about the weapons that Daesh and other Amadi terror groups have. I understand, I believe, uh, many of them rose-born export weapons and uh, I believe some communist countries where these weapons are produced are, are considered as part partners in the war against terror. Is there any way to make the manufacturer
1: of weapons accountable for, for weapons that are going
2: That's not the area I focus on, but that is one of these questions about the provenance or the origin of the uh, weapons that are being used. But sadly, guess what they're using? The weapons that we gave them. Um, and that's why they are the most well-equipped So every time that uh, uh, ISIL would take over uh, new territory, they would basically take over the arsenal of both the police and the military bases, which were very well equipped with yours and my tax dollars. So that's actually why they're actually better equipped and better armed than the Pashmurga and other groups that are fighting them. Um, And it's an area too that uh, the replenishment piece is quite important. They're really on their heels now militarily, but I think the bigger question is you can, conclude or make progress on what I call the away game against uh, ISIL in Iraq and Syria but we're we need to take a look at where those the people who survived the 40,000 who survived and now see no reason to stay there they're the ones that are coming back who uh, wish us more than just ill will and this is an area that we need to open up our eyes this year I spent some um, significant amount of time in Trinidad Tobago everyone's like oh that's great there's like a resort there is there sandals I'm like no Um, It's in Tobago, but the government's in Trinidad. Uh, The the Five Star Hotel is next to the dock, not very glamorous. But they have produced 134. This is a small island population of 1.3 million people. 5% are Muslim. They produced 134 foreign fighters for ISIS. And they're trying to come back. And they they need a visa to come to the United States, but they don't need a visa to go anywhere in Central America and then walk over our border. So these are the types of things that an away game that's now spread has direct implications and threats to us. Um, And that's a bigger question. And in terms of, they're just not that sophisticated, right? So you have this guy using a knife and not a semi-automatic weapon, but doing the same type of psychological damage, right? In terms of a terrorist act. I saw the other hand here. Oh, yeah, yes.
1: (laughs) Two questions, quick questions. First one: There are two countries which have been successful in countering Islamic terrorism on the edge of terrorism, such as number one, Israel, and the second experience which I admire is in India. Have you looked at it as an implementation? Get useful lessons from it for the United States. That's my first question. Mm-hmm. Second question is: uh, The Shia militias in Iraq are getting a huge amount of funding now from corruption money, as you said, convergence of crime, Mm -hmm. but this corruption money is government corruption and this is funding the Quds Force, which is basically now the major funding for Hezbollah, Mm -hmm. Houthis in Yemen, and all the Iranian operations in the world. Have you looked at it? I didn't see you mentioning this.
2: Right, that's one of those ones that we're looking at, but if we showed you, we'd have to kill the entire audience. Uh, it is happening. On the first one, we were looking at lessons learned. Um, so Israel, as you know, is a, is a great example of this citizen awareness that I'm trying. That it's at the extreme, right? So since you're a little child, uh, from the beginning that you go to a preschool, you see something, you say something. Actually, my Israeli colleagues and uh, classmates said that the, the Boston Marathon bombing would never have happened in Israel because there's no way that a backpack would have been unattended for X number of minutes. Mm-hmm. It's a very different piece, and also just the culture there. Every uh, boy and girl must do military service. They're they're, physic- they're citizens who actually have to take part in their national security. Um, the Swiss also have that. So this is a bigger question about what type of culture we want to have. Um, so what we try to do is raise awareness. So every September, I do some work at the Woodrow Wilson School, and I've come here to McLean High School once in a while. We teach the history of 9-11, and we also teach the concept of see something, say something, but we also expand it to other things. cyberbullying, bullying, because there's, there's, they're not gonna really encounter, perhaps hopefully not, a terrorist, but also drug use. You make it more kind of applicable to them. Like just be aware of your surroundings. Usually when there's a even a, the heroin epidemic is something that we didn't talk about tonight. It has nothing to do with terrorism, but it is amazing how this is really taking over every society, every segment of society every urban, suburban, rural. And a lot of times that early intervention, it's because the classmate kind of saw something but they didn't want to say anything. So this is this question. Israel is a great example of the citizen soldier and an awareness from a very young age about that. The areas that we're looking at in terms of de-radicalization, really interesting are the cases of uh Indonesia, which had a very uh, challenging time with uh, Jama'at Islamiyah. You probably remember the Bali bombings, the Jakarta Marriott bombings, and then Morocco. I spent several weeks in Morocco this uh, summer. What they're trying to do is the returnees who are coming back from uh, Iraq and Syria, is instead of punishing them and incarcerating them, it's trying to also understand how they got there, like what was the path to radicalization, and trying to uh, get them to reincorporate. And it's still a young program. Uh, but it's something that's very interesting to take a look at. And this is where I think the international <coughs> lessons learned are very important to actually document uh, and how it's actually being. And then a lot of, in the Morocco, we're working with, uh, with the French and the Dutch are there and the Belgians who are having this problem with the returnees uh, as well. Great questions, though. So, those, that's the, well, the bigger thing is if you take a look at what's happening in the Middle East, it's actually a proxy war, right, of the great powers and between Iran and Saudi Arabia, basically Sunni Shia. And the bigger question that a lot of veterans who fought in Iraq, who were victims of the IEDs that were basically supplied and kind of conducted with the Shia militia, they're the ones they have to actually work with now. It's the most ironic. What's fascinating with the young men who are going now in Special Forces in Iraq and Syria, they were too young to serve in Iraq. They were, um, they're now about 26, 28. So 10 years ago when we had the first, when the invasion, they were still in high school. So we have to actually reteach the war in Iraq, and the surge, and more importantly, the role of Iran. So it's so complex in the different issues, but I think those are the tasks that uh, the next president inherits this, I call it the the, the wheel of doom, the circle of doom, uh, and very complex. Sometimes you have to fight, right? You have to have what we call transactional relationships for expediency, even though they actually undermine our longer-term goals. And you know that, I think.
1: No, it's only the ones that are the kind of
2: top of mind.
1: I was wondering, you know, could you do the same examination domestically and come up with a list of what's operating in the United States in terms of crime that are
2: that Well, there are some terms of like uh, right-wing extremist groups that actually make a ton of money on uh, meth. So I do a lot of stuff on crime, taking a look at uh, what's so fascinating about right-wing extremists, they actually Collaborate with Mexico, even though they're quite racist. They actually are the uh, salesmen of the Mexican cartels, of the heroin and methamphetamine that's sadly permeating all of our different societies. So, this is this question that's always been at the crux of why the concept of convergence, particularly in the intelligence community, was anathema to them. This idea that they were purists. They, you assumed that the terrorist was a purist who would never, and this is true actually, Bin Laden dissuaded and discouraged his lieutenants for getting involved in crime because it would raise their profile and the risk of being caught. But it's also a group that didn't need the money. So this is where you're seeing this. So some of them are called hybrid groups, right? That are actually, and then the question is, the case of the Mexican cartels, they're using terrorist tactics, but they do not have political aspirations to take over the Mexican government. So we don't call them terrorist groups, even though they're just as ruthless, doing beheadings, dismemberments, physical terror, and extortion, all the different pieces. So the other piece I'm looking at is how they have diversified and become also a multinational, multifaceted uh, criminal enterprise. So what we're trying to do is instead of categorizing and putting them in silos, we're trying to have a much greater appreciation and that's what we call them illicit networks now. It's a very, in caps. And then we're also calling it now trans-regional threats because of the fact that these groups are uh, going global. Uh, everything that we teach in business school about how you want to run a multinational corporation, they've got their own MBA students studying the same thing, but sadly for the dark side. And what they're looking for are the best in class service providers, the best money launderer, the best counterfeiter for documents, the and Victor Boots, right? The Lord of War movie is probably a great example. Victor Boots uh, was basically an arms dealer. He didn't really have a philosophical uh, opinion if he was gonna support Charles Taylor and, and whatnot. It's literally to generate business. And that's probably the difference. The criminals are motivated by money and avarice and greed. And the terrorists are motivated by a political ideology and have political aspirations. And many times they do both. So it's pretty fascinating to see. So that's what we talk about. When we talk about convergence.
1: Two very different questions. I can't see you. In <laughs> uh, a free society, striking a uh, proper balance between security and the freedom of pre society uh, towards, is it a challenge and not to the if you see something, say something.
2: So in the case of the wife of, Abu, the man's name was Abu Sayyaf. Uh, She was actually rendered to our Iraqi allies uh, to actually interrogate. And more importantly, what motivated her was the prospect of never seeing her children again. So it's very interesting. And then what's very interesting, too, about um, ISIS, as opposed to other Islamic terrorist groups, whether it's Jemaah Samia or Boko Haram, um, women play a much more important role than we had ever anticipated. So one of six foreign fighters was actually female which is really interesting in terms of that path to radicalization. Um, And uh, so that's the bigger piece, is how do you then take it, you know, in terms of, and it's come up again, right, in terms of uh, what is enhanced, what's the definition of enhanced interrogation and what conditions uh, should it be used. Um, The best intelligence is always human intelligence and also, as you know, it's always gaining the confidence of your contacts. Whether you do it as a diplomat or as a CIA case officer, or as a military interrogator. And more importantly, it's very clear what the lines are. Um, on your other question about the balance, and then this became a big issue with the NSA Snowden leak, right? Um, what they do, and local law enforcement, uh, we work a lot with the DC police trying to understand, see something, say something. They actually require that you uh, identify yourself. So there's, it's not some random anonymous uh, tip line. And then they actually do due diligence to make sure that it's a legitimate piece. But their view is that they'd rather have someone tip them off that there's a pressure cooker on the side of the street, and it be a false positive, a false uh, kind of sighting, as opposed to actually risk uh, the other piece. Um, as you also know, we use a lot of surveillance now um, in uh, the United States. Um, that is very helpful to figure out who. Like in the uh, New York City, they uh, had to get all of the local stores on 23rd Street and get a warrant to get the video of uh, the front of their store to see who the perpetrator was. And it's very important uh, that you have that type of collaboration without also the retribution. So the idea is how to create a safe harbor for those who are gonna help in an investigation. Um, and they won't be actually penalized. But work every day, that is the struggle of law enforcement authorities strike that balance between privacy and then, more importantly, uh, security. And we've been grappling with that since, ni- uh, since 9-11. Uh, Selena, first, uh, thanks for the
1: presentation.
2: I only see Joseph on the airplane. Nice to see you in uh, D.C. <laughs>
1: Uh, is on the topic of convergence, one of the ways of convergence is also the collaboration between student networks and machine networks. Most Notably, Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda, who have collaborated over the years. Is there a potential um, that ISIS
2: So in terms of ISIS um, in Latin America, we've seen it mostly in the Caribbean uh, just because a lot of their propaganda is in in English and also because that is where there are uh, Muslim communities. So Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago are areas there. What's even more disturbing, I think you've all seen and it's been very underreported, they've just crossed the threshold of 60,000 unaccompanied minors coming from Central America into the United States this year. Uh, and what we're very worried about and then so I spent some time this summer I I traveled a lot I just clocked 52,000 miles uh, in American Airlines Um, they have these refugee camps uh, in we talk about the refugee camps in Turkey and Lebanon with Syrian refugees they're in our own hemisphere so they're actually they found I was in Panama in May and they discovered 43 people from the Congo who came on a ship, a freighter ship, to Argentina and physically made their way. They were wanted to come to the United States. These are committed people, right? They were found in the Darien, which is a very dense jungle on the border of Panama and Colombia. What they're talking about now, or they call them in Spanish, extracontinentales, not of the continent. And they're trying to see a lot of this flow. And I think Joseph and I have seen, they're seeing Syrians, they're seeing Somalis, and sadly, because of our porous borders, which has been a part of the campaign, you basically pay, co- they called coyotes, a coyote, a trafficker in Mexico to help you cross the border for about $5,000. Um, and this is an area where we're seeing that um, you had a flood of Cubans who were trying to come to the United States, they would go down to Ecuador and then physically make their way through Panama, Colombia, or Costa Rica and then to kind of uh, come to the United States to seek political asylum, because once the law changes, that will not be the case. Now, what we're seeing the most uh, recently is the wave of Central Americans trying to come to the United States because of uh, their perception that the, uh, President Trump is going to build a wall. So this is actually why you see this surge of, what we're worried about is who else is using those supply chains that I explained to you, right? To move people. And the Mexican coyote doesn't care if you're a member of Al-Qaeda or Boko Haram or ISIS. Uh, He just wants to get paid to facilitate the peace. Um, And here in the Washington area, I think you guys know that we have a very large Central American population here. So the price of, as of September for a Guatemalan to send their child through one of these traffickers is about $6,000 to get them to Silver Spring, Maryland. Um, And that's a fortune for these impoverished kind of peasants and farmers in northern Guatemala to send their child here. And you can imagine how treacherous that journey is. And many of those children actually don't make it to the United States. They become enslaved uh, and are sadly become victims of human trafficking. So this is an area that we need to be aware of. And just as we didn't think that terrorists and criminals would work together, we should not think that Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Hezbollah, Hamas are not gonna work together. Because they have certain interests or certain what we call friendships of utility that they need to acquire a certain service or access or movement that one of them actually has the specialty in. And that's where we look at this thing called the facilitators. A lot of the money launderers and the money runners, they don't care if it's drug money or terrorist money, they're just a facilitator that's getting paid a fee. So we call them actually service providers. But now under the law, in the United States, we treat them with the exact severity as if they were, they call it some material support for terrorism, it's actually the piece of the law that we've executed the most in terms of incarcerating uh, the majority of uh, those who are supporters of Al Qaeda, uh, ISIL and other groups as well. Uh,
0: Selena, if I could quickly ask yes. the last question. Um, you're talking about what we're doing to cut the money flows. What are our purported allies doing to do that? And not especially the French but say the Saudis and yeah. the Gulf countries from which we know a lot of the
2: money has gone to these groups. So very interestingly in contrast to Al Qaeda that got most of its actually it was not involved in crime the extent that ISIL or Hezbollah is. They got their money from donors and this is an area that we were looking at tremendously either private donors or perhaps state sponsor. A very small amount of space sponsorship goes to ISIL, which is very interesting. Um, and in the Gulf, we've actually had, uh, interestingly and curiously, tremendous cooperation with them in terms of trying to crack down and identify. What we still think is that it's moving as cash, which is very hard uh, to detect, or um, through hawalas, this underground banking system. But the GCC countries have, uh, they understand also that they're at risk. Uh, So whether it's the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, they're actually really trying to enforce a lot of the International uh, Financial Action Task Force standards, Uh, much more so because that was a very heavy lift, as you remember, at the beginning of the war on terror to get our uh, counterparts to really take it seriously. And it's nothing like an attack on your own homeland to get you have it be top of mind uh, in terms of cutting off the financing. What really is the problem with ISIL and why it's so resilient, they are auto financed as long as they control territory and have going concerns in business. And that's why actually the military campaign to take back control and keep control of Mosul and Raqqa are really quite important. And what the thing is we have not seen them start to finance the different franchises, which was the difference of Al-Qaeda core was actually in communications with its different franchises and helping them either tactically or training or financially. We have actually not seen that yet. So it's really interesting to see because they were trying to build their caliphates and then they have the alternate caliphate which we didn't talk about was in Libya, another favorite failed state uh, in terms of with the same exact conditions, geographically right on the route for human trafficking. They're not actually trafficking the people, they're taking a 15 to 20% cut from the traffickers, and the same is true the very rich oil fields that they have. It's almost like they're replicating, uh, they call it the alternate caliphate, how they were able to expand in uh, northern Iraq and Syria and replicate the same model uh, in Libya. So it's really interesting to see how they've learned, and they're really quite systematic in terms of how they're trying to build, which is something we didn't see bin Laden talked about, a global caliphate but was never able to actually execute the way that these folks have been able to do.